Hey there, cyber listeners. Emily here. Just a heads up that this episode discusses topics including sexual violence and suicide. If you want to skip those parts of the discussion, you could head to the 40-minute timestamp where we begin our discussion about nukes in space. So, yeah, on to the show. Uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. So, Carney is a is a slur in the wrestling community. Yeah, you hear it from usually younger wrestlers who are talking about older wrestlers. They'll say they're carnies. It's a pretty flexible word. It can be a noun. It can be an adjective, and it goes to in older days wrestling was based out of carnivals and a lot of it would be wrestlers would they were basically conning people they would do things like um have a they would have a bit where a wrestler would stand in the ring and he'd say anybody can come out of the crowd and challenge me and if you you know you last five minutes with me you get x amount of money And then, you know, touts in the audience would gather bets on this sort of thing. And the wrestler could let the guy go five minutes or not let him go five minutes, depending on where the betting action was. Um, These days, obviously, everybody knows wrestling is a show, but it has its roots in basically manipulating gamblers with, uh, you know, with these predetermined finishes. And that's a little bit, that's a little bit of a simplification, but, um, you know, terms like AFABE, I I think that's actually from Carney language. So, so I didn't know this, I guess, I mean, when I, when I was a kid and I was watching the undertaker and it was the WWF and not the WWE, Mm -hmm. uh, you think that it's, when you're 10, you think it's real at a certain point, you kind of realize that it's not, it's like a Santa Claus thing. Uh, yeah. To be clear, that doesn't diminish the like the athleticism or the sportsmanship. And... Yeah, I'm still not convinced personally. But... Oh, really? <laughs> that it's not real, <laughs> or that there there is a lot of showmanship, is what I'll say. <laughs> Fair. There's what is real about it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't diminish what they're doing at all. What they're doing is, you know, it's incredibly impressive, and you know, they're athletes like any other pro athletes. The the a lot of people get hung up on the uh, is it predetermined or not? It's, it's like it just it's just basically kind of irrelevant so there was an era where people went to wrestling and believed like it wasn't um this kind of fantasy that you indulged in so that's an interesting question because there are definitely going back to the 19th century there are definitely accounts in newspapers where the writers are like this is obviously phony like this is you know this this isn't on the level i think probably in a contemporary context the best way to think of it would be like if the UFC was rigged in the sense that in certain fights, guys were taking dives and getting payoffs from gamblers. And then it kind of evolved from that into the fighters cooperating to make their fights more entertaining 
And it, it just kept going down that road until it was very much like a, a performance thing. Yeah, the artifice became the entire show. Yeah, yeah, because even as you have in the 19th century writers talking about how, you know, this is obviously all a show, it does appear that, you know, guys were able to put on a show and fleece marks. Like that's the, there's another wrestling term that's, you know, in some context, a little bit of a slur, you call the fans marks. And that's out of them literally being marks who who you're trying to 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 fleece to get to put down a bad bet so that you and your collaborator the bookie can uh can can make your profits it's a fascinating art form will you introduce yourself to the lovely people before we get too much deeper into a weird episode uh that we'll have that we'll have we'll be talking about two very very different stories today very different stories I'm a, I'm Tim Marchman. I'm a features editor at Vice News. Emily, I'm kind of curious. What is your relationship to professional wrestling, or do you have one at all? That's that's a wonderful question. Um, there was a period of time in which my roommate was trying to get into wrestling, and she was listening to the WrestleSplania podcast for a while. Um, so I'd hear bits and pieces, but wrestling was never really a part of my life before that i didn't my dad didn't watch wrestling when i was growing up we were a baseball and you know we were mostly a baseball and football kind of family um mets and jets if that gives any sort of a picture um and yeah i mean like i knew who some of these guys were i continue to get really tripped up on the differences between wwe and wwf but for me it's like you know these are figures that i'm aware of but more in the sense of the artistry and the showmanship um, and how they exist as public figures outside of the ring versus inside of the ring. Well, the, the WWE slash WWF divide is like many things in this story um, centered around a lawsuit, right, Tim? Yeah. So I guess where do we want to start? Why, why do some, what, what, like, when did it change from the WWE to the WWF and, uh, jumping from there, how central was the, was Vince McMahon, who is primarily what we're here to talk about today to the evolution of, of this from conning marks at a carnival to it becoming the, the giant franchise that it is today. So your first question, it, it moved from being the World Wrestling Federation to World Wrestling Entertainment in the early aughts. I want to say like 2022, somewhere around there, because the World Wildlife Fund had sued the WWF over some sort of trademark infringement, and they'd come to an agreement. The World Wrestling Federation then apparently violated the agreement, and uh, the World Wildlife Fund said, well, you can't use WWF at all in these ways. And so they just changed it to, to WWE. Vince McMahon is a really weird and fascinating figure. Um, we're going to be talking about him a lot today. He's been the central figure in pro wrestling for about 40 years. And the story he likes to tell is that he's, you know, kind of a self-made man who took wrestling from smoky, you know, disgusting halls where old guys were sitting around in hats gambling on this stuff and like yokels were thinking it was real um into the gleaming 
you know, modern entertainment spectacle it is, which like none of that is true. He's a third generation wrestling promoter. His father was the promoter who promoted in, in Washington and New York and Baltimore and Philly. I'm not a wrestling historian, although by the, the standards of a normal person, I, I guess I am because I know a lot about it. But in, I want to say like the 1930s, the 1940s, wrestling was promoted locally. So there was a Chicago promotion, there was an LA promotion, New York promotion. And the Department of Justice actually investigated this at one point. But at a certain point, the promoters all came together and formed a cartel. They were like, we won't compete. The guy in Kansas City won't promote in St. Louis. The guy in St. Louis won't promote in Kansas City. So you basically had a circuit where you had territories all over the country that were controlled by individual promoters. And they each had exclusivity in that region. So obviously this worked against the wrestlers because, you know, there's no union, there's no real contracts or anything. So if, uh, you know, if you're in Kansas city and you decide to start your own promotion, you're going to get blackballed by all the promoters who are allied with the guy you're, you're running opposition to in the early eighties, wrestling was really popular on cable, which was then starting up like with every evolution of TV wrestling has been at the forefront of it. Now we see that with Netflix where, you know, WWE moved one of its shows over to, to live streaming on Netflix. They're going to be the first company that's doing anything like that. On TBS, there was, uh, you know, wrestling from the South that was, that was nationally broadcast did big ratings. And so with, you know, cable becoming more popular, it was inevitable that that old cartel system was going to be busted up because, if you're the promoter in Chicago, you now can't prevent your fans from seeing what's happening in other areas due to cable. And Vince McMahon kind of was the guy who took advantage of that wave and he expanded his company nationally. It was already in the Northeast. It was, it was like the home promotion for you know most of the biggest cities in America. So he started signing up the stars from other promotions to exclusive contracts. He started promoting in their territories, running TV at the same time their TV shows were on. And he got the national cable spot that was on TBS for a while. Like he, he basically, he was a guy who had a vision and that vision was one of a world in which we had diverse local regional promotions that were specific to the areas that we're in. There was one national and eventually international company that would dominate everything. So he's this really central figure in wrestling, but he's also this very, very much like a figure of the eighties, like WWF becomes like Walmart moving in, running out all the local mom and pop hardware shops. And, you know, we see that all across the economy in the eighties and the nineties. He's a figure of that, of that wave. One of, uh, you know, cool, small scale stuff getting replaced by boring, big scale stuff, one might say. Did he have that kind of, you know, boring business like vibe in public or was that more, you know, on the inside of the organization? His, so he was an announcer. He was actually an announcer for years before he took over the company. He uh, he's a very Trump like figure. He's He's very tied to Trump, like personally and professionally. And the same way Donald Trump kind of likes to present himself as a, a bit of a self-made man. Vince McMahon bought WWF from his dad for like less than it was taking in an annual revenue. 
It was, I, I don't know exactly what he bought it for, but it was the equivalent of selling it for a dollar. And he presented as this very kind of slick, corny, goofy announcer while in public out of character, he was this just like a huckster, like a sleazy, like a sleazy huckster, I guess would be the best way to put it. A corny. Uh, one might say a carny. <laughs> I'm just realizing that that's him in the meme. Oh, really? <laughs> like, I, I had a sense that that's who that was. I'm terrible with faces and names. And, like, again, I don't really have much of a background in in watching wrestling and consuming wrestling content. So, yeah, learning things every day. So the reason we're talking about Vince McMahon is that a couple of weeks ago, a woman named Janelle Grant filed a lawsuit accusing him and a former WWE executive named John Laurinaitis, and WWE itself of sex trafficking. And the allegations in the lawsuit are almost unbelievable. They're they're one of the worst things you'll ever read. And I'm not going to get into them in detail, but basically the allegation is that McMahon groomed Grant, who lived in the same luxury condo building as him. Her parents had recently died. She had no unemployment history, or she had no employment history. So she was in a rough spot. The resident manager in the building is like, hey, you know, we have a billionaire working in the building, living in the building, Vince McMahon. Like, maybe he can help you out. The allegation is that she's at this low, vulnerable point in her life. He begins grooming her, brings her in in a fake job at WWE, and then just begins taking absolute advantage of her coercing her into group sex with business associates of his and directing her to create explicit content for and uh, service other men sexually, including in the offices. There are allegations of, you know, of rape of other things. And it's, it's a really, it's a really harrowing document to read. It's, it's quite credible. There are a number of, uh, really depraved text messages from him in it. Uh, McMahon and Laurinaitis deny the allegations, but they haven't, for instance, said that these text messages aren't real. So there's information in the lawsuit that, you know, corroborates her claims. And a further element of it is that a number of unnamed WWE executives are said to have been aware that at the least she was his girlfriend who he had put on the payroll. So even if they weren't aware of exactly what the nature of the relationship was allegedly. So it's just a really gross and tawdry set of circumstances. And in all, it kind of looks like, um, like a Harvey Weinstein kind of scandal where you have someone who over a long period of time is using his power to sexually coerce women, including women who are working for him. Why is this a lawsuit and not a criminal case? So part of the backstory here is that as the Wall Street Journal reported a couple of years ago, McMahon had signed a number of non-disclosure agreements with women. This led to him briefly leaving WWE before being brought back as the chairman of its successor company. Um, According to the journal's reporting, those NDAs came to the attention of the board of directors, which hadn't known about them. And it became a corporate scandal, partly because there were accounting irregularities. Uh, without getting too into the weeds, it seems he he secretly drew up these NDAs and then the women were being paid out uh, with WWE funds inappropriately. 
Um, so aside from the actual underlying conduct, there was, you know, there were a lot of questions about uh, accounting. Basically, it's a public company. These things have to be looked into. So uh, Janelle Grant alleges in her suit that she signed an NDA in exchange for $3 million and that he stopped paying out on the NDA. There was an initial million dollar installment that he did pay her to be quiet. And that after, after that, he had simply stopped paying. This is just inferential, but we can conclude that he believed he didn't have to pay her because even though the exact allegations hadn't been reported, the news of the NDA had been uh, reported in the wall street journal, like its existence. So she's suing because he broke the NDA and she didn't get the money that he contracted to pay her. So she wants that. She says she can now no longer work because she's uh, experienced such severe trauma and she's dealing with the lingering aftermath of that. So on the face of it, she's, she's suing for money uh, over the damage he caused, uh, and his backing out of an agreement to pay her money for that. And also part of the suit seeks for the voiding of the NDA. And one of the lead lawyers in the case has a background in class action suits. So it would probably be fair to surmise that part of the point of this suit is to encourage other women to come forward. So is this the kind of thing that could eventually lead to criminal charges. It sounds like it. It sounds similar to some other stories we've heard recently. Yeah, absolutely. The um, Wall Street Journal has reported that there's a federal criminal investigation going on into sex trafficking and other crimes. So the definition of trafficking is basically commercial sex acts that are obtained through force, fraud, or coercion um, to the extent that this woman was being paid and in essence as part of her job duties was being told to uh, sexually service, you know, McMahon and, and business associates, it would certainly, you know, seem to be the sort of thing that could result in, in criminal charges, as well as just the underlying, um, you know, the underlying claims of rape. Now I have reached out to the police in Stanford, Connecticut, where a lot of this is said to have taken place. And they say there have been no criminal charges filed, um, against McMahon or Laurinaitis, but of course, there isn't statute of limitations on that. And, uh, you know, Ms. Grant could bring those charges at any time if she chose to. So at the center of this story is NDAs. They've been at the center of like so many cases of people behaving terribly uh, in the last 20 years. And they also don't seem to hold up when something serious happens. It seems as if rich and powerful people use NDAs it's, they think it's some sort of magical armor and it typically doesn't hold up. Like what is the point of these things? How are the, and how are the WWE NDA set up? And uh, can we get into the weeds a little bit, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. We can get into the weeds there. So broadly a non-disclosure agreement is a contract where you're agreeing not to share something in exchange for, you know, some good. And there are lots of legitimate, completely legitimate purposes for them. If you're, if you're an Apple engineer and Apple wants you not to be able to walk across the street to Google and share trade secrets about, you know, how the iPhone is put together, that makes total sense. And there's really no one who finds that objectionable. What we're talking about here is, 
you know, there's no, there's no real legitimate public purpose in telling someone they can't talk about, you know, having been sexually assaulted at work, for instance. So there are a couple of things going on. One is that there's an increasing legal movement to bar this kind of NDA, including in Connecticut, where there's some proposed legislation that would not only bar the type of NDA we're talking about here, but possibly make it retroactive. So it would invalidate all such agreements that have been signed. But the other is kind of a more fundamental point about NDAs, which is that more than anything, they're a PR instrument. So if a wrongdoer signs someone to an NDA and says, I'm going to give you a bunch of money and you can't talk about this, that doesn't apply to criminal charges. You can't NDA your way out of, you know, into legal immunity for, for wrongdoing. So you're basically setting up a contract where if somebody violates their side of the NDA, you have the right to penalize them, maybe claw back the money you've already paid them, or you can sue them for breach of contract, or you can do these things. But in a real sense, it's not even very effective um, because what you're trying to do is keep the damaging information from coming out. And if the damaging information does come out and you don't have some legitimate reason to keep it secret, like the example I just gave, all you're doing is creating more bad publicity. It's like if somebody sues you because they say you coerce them into, into sex acts as a term of your employment and they go to the New York Times with that. And then you, on top of that, sue them for sharing accurate information that they had agreed to keep quiet. Now you look all the worse. So it's it's logically it's kind of a kind of a puzzle as to what the the actual import is of them. And wrongdoers who are shielded by NDAs are more typically actually shielded by any of the reasons someone might not want to come forward and talk about this stuff, you know. You might not want your parents or your kids or your neighbors to know about it. You might just not want to get back into something that was, you know, the worst experience of your life. You may just not want the publicity. Like there are all sorts of reasons why someone might not uh, want to talk about this. And usually that is why someone isn't talking about it more than because they have uh, signed an NDA. The specific thing with the NDAs here is that there are a couple of weird wrinkles with them. One is that there were three parties to these agreements or this agreement, rather uh, Janelle Grant, Vince McMahon in his personal capacity and Vince McMahon kind of signing as the chairman of WWE. WWE's own lawyers didn't even know about the agreements. And that's a that's a little bit of a, a weird wrinkle because it raises questions about conflicts of interest. But the language used in the NDA was also extraordinarily broad to the point where Grant you know, if you if you strictly read the NDA, wouldn't have been able to list WWE on her resume. And her lawyers are arguing that this language is so broad that it's on its face and valid. You know, just because you and I sign a contract doesn't mean that a court has to enforce it. And they're saying the court should rule that this one can't be enforced. So we don't know, but it's a reasonably safe bet that probably the other NDAs that McMahon signed had had similarly broad language. And so if the NDA were ruled invalid in this case, you could extrapolate that the other ones probably would be too, and that the women in those cases could, if they chose to, come out and talk for, you know, fairly free of fear of that kind of repercussion. If the in-house lawyers didn't even know about this, are there other people within the organization that did know? About the NDAs or the underlying behavior? In general. So the suit says that there were four different executives who knew, one of whose leaving was 
they say, tied to it in some way. It's not clear if this person left or was fired over it. But these are these are very high ups and high up people, executives, including a, a board member or two, allegedly, who were aware of the relationship. And more generally, this really didn't come out of nowhere. There have been uh, rumors and allegations about McMahon going back many decades. There was a woman named Rita Chatterton who alleged on national TV, it was on the Geraldo show, but it was national TV, that in 1986, uh, McMahon had raped her in a limo. She was the first female referee in WWF. And before he came back as chairman of the board of uh, WWE successor company, TKO, she had sent him a demand letter and he settled with her for, I couldn't swear to this, but I believe in the vicinity of $10 million. So take that as take that as you will. And moreover, there had been a lot of rumors about, you know, kind of a casting couch in WWE and even on air, McMahon scripted himself as this sort of horny old billionaire who was constantly, you know, leching after women or making them bark like dogs or do all sorts of horrible things. On the one hand, that's scripted entertainment. And on the other hand, the line between reality and fiction and wrestling can be a, a little thin. So it's a it's a thing where even people watching the shows would say, you know, what's what's going on here? Right. It's bizarre because he's he's cast himself as the heel in the WWE, right? He was kind of like the archvillain of the whole thing. That's kind of how I remember him. From the little bit of time that I watched it. Yeah, he for a long time, he was the kind of genial and buffoonish announcer. And then he transitioned into a role as the evil, malevolent owner who was always trying to stop the, you know, the virtuous baby faces like The Rock and Steve Austin from winning the title. You know, from there, he transitioned into this into this role as just like an evil billionaire tormenting his employees and like degrading them. Uh, which is allegedly what he was doing in real life, too, and, and doing it through the means of the show. Um, it's it's all very complicated. It can make your head spin. Can we also talk about uh, some more of the stuff that you reported out this week around, uh, I don't know how to say your last name, is it Ashley Massaro? Yeah, it's Ashley Massaro. Uh, what was that story, and what did you find out? Uh, so this is really complicated, so <laughs> all this stuff is. So Ashley Massaro was a woman who was signed to a WWE contract in, I want to say... 2005 um, after participating in basically a reality show within WWE programming called the diva search. And this was where women with no background in wrestling were brought on and they took part in kind of like game show competitions. And one was eliminated every week until there was one left who was signed to a $250,000 contract years later in 2017, as part of a, uh, Lawsuit, dozens of wrestlers filed against WWE, alleging that they had suffered traumatic brain injuries and that they were due damages due to these, kind of like the NFL concussion lawsuit. She filed an affidavit making a number of claims. And these range from things like she had been put in the ring without being trained so that she was, you know, she suffered a lot of injuries because she didn't know what she was doing to an allegation that in 2006, when she was on a goodwill tour of the Middle East with WWE going to going to military bases, doing these uh, tribute to the troops type shows. They were like USO shows, you know, they would go say, say hi to the troops and all that kind of stuff. 
She said that she was suffering from dehydration and was taken to a base in Kuwait where a man representing himself as an army doctor injected her with a paralyzing drug and a woman was put at the door and then he sexually assaulted her. She then she said that she didn't feel she was in a position to have a rape kit taken or to report it to any authorities. And that when she came back to the States, it was kind of common knowledge that she told a doctor and then she believed the doctor who was working for WWE had told Vince McMahon that she was summoned to a meeting with him, Laurinaitis, and some of McMahon's other top lieutenants and basically told, you should be quiet about this. We don't want to screw up our relationship with the military. And they agreed that they wouldn't talk about it either. She died by suicide in 2019. And at the time, WWE said no one knew about this. It was never reported to anyone affiliated with WWE. Upper management didn't know about it. They denied the meeting. They said that if they had known about it, they would have reported it to the base commander. So the new information we had is that Laurinaitis, the co-defendant in the sex trafficking lawsuit, his lawyer says that he was made aware of it. He knew about it um, and that most of upper management knew about it. And that's corroborated by an interview that was given to a podcast called Ashley v. WWE that Audible put out last fall, in which a doctor, Ferdinand Rios, he said that he had reported it to Laurinaitis when he became aware of it. So WWE's claims really don't hold any water um, as far as denying that they knew about it. Laurinaitis hasn't spoken. He hasn't confirmed that the meeting Masaro described took place. But certainly his saying that most of upper management knew bolsters the credibility of our affidavit. And the lawyers who took that affidavit subsequently provided to us unpublished portion of the affidavit, which they had originally omitted from what they filed with the court because it was kind of orthogonal to the central issues in the suit, where she says that she saw Vince McMahon making out with female wrestlers in the locker room and that he directly uh, harassed her was like calling her late at night to get her to come alone to his hotel room, was calling her hotel phone, was calling her cell phone. And that when she rejected his advances, he retaliated against her by scripting her in humiliating ways. Scripting her, you mean like literally making sure that she was doing humiliating things on the show? Yeah. She said that he had done this to at least one other, one other female wrestler. And like I said before, you know, it's a very odd show and there have been wrestling fans for years who have wondered like, why is this person, you know, being scripted to behave like this? There are certainly lots of examples that, you know, people have found and are finding of just really degrading scenarios being written out for, for women. And, you know, given, given what she said, it's certainly reasonable to wonder like if, if this performer was being scripted to perform in this way, was it because she had rejected his advances? It, it, it all around starts to look like a pretty classic casting couch scheme. And there was also a, what do we know about, you know, this supposedly happened on a U.S. military base? Yeah, so it happened on, I don't have the name of the base to hand, but it's a base in Kuwait where there's a medical clinic where um, a source told us it would have been actually staffed by Navy personnel. So there had been reporters in the past who put in FOIA requests seeking any information about this, and they just hadn't come up with anything. You know, the Army would say, you know, yeah, we don't have any records on this. So it turns out that there actually was an investigation opened after her death. 
because the affidavit I've been discussing, her lawyers published it after she died. So we don't quite know yet that much about the investigation, but there was an investigation opened by the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, just like in the TV show, into whether this happened. This was um, opened the month after she died, I think, and then closed six months later. So we have uh, a request in with the Navy for more information about that investigation. No idea you know, what it will find. It would have taken place 13 years after the alleged incident. So it's quite possible that even with the diligent investigation, they just couldn't find anything. Maybe they found she fabricated it and maybe they found um, everything she said was true. We just don't know yet. So hopefully they'll release that information uh, sooner rather than later. What's the deal with Laurinaitis? Because I feel like there was some other stuff going on there. There was a piece that you published that looks into not necessarily his role, because he is listed as a co-defendant, but one of the headlines of your pieces is co-defendant Vince McMahon's sex trafficking lawsuit says that he was a victim too. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Laurinaitis is a longtime wrestling executive, and before that he was a, he was a kind of a journeyman wrestler. He, he spent a lot of time in Japan. And he eventually came over to the U.S. as a guy who helped the wrestlers like lay out the matches and come up with the sequences they were going to do in them. And he moved from that into a role as a talent relations executive. So charged with like hiring people, firing people, scouting talent, that kind of thing. He served in that role on and off for about 20 years. And he was pretty... Much of that time, he was pretty widely rumored to be just like a skeezy guy, someone who, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> like, a, like a, like a, like a known skeezy guy and associate of like a close associate of Vince McMahon's. So his lawyer told me when I reached out to him for comment about things that while he denies all the allegations in the lawsuit, he's a victim of McMahon, just like Janelle Grant was. And he says that, you know, if you look through the suit, count up how many instances of Vince McMahon exerting control over Laurinaitis there are. So in our story, we quote exactly what he had to say. But, you know, unpacking it a little bit, he seems to be saying that Laurinaitis was coerced, that he was acting under duress and that he was an instrument of McMahon's, which is you know, hard, hard to know what to do with, uh, the, you know, I, I really don't want to get too specific about the stuff because it's incredibly graphic, but for instance, one of the allegations is that McMahon scheduled Grant to, uh, go to Lauren Ice's hotel room before work on a routine basis and like sexually service him that she was called into his office to do that while there were other people in the office, things like that. So, it's it's hard to know what to make of it, but that's you know that's what his lawyer says is that he was he was a victim of of McMahon's coercive scheme. I would say it doesn't hold water for me. Uh, not that not that my opinion matters at all, but I think that's I think that's a totally fair conclusion to come to uh, if you if if you read the suit. Um, I think you know if if that's the argument he's making, uh, you know I'll take it at face value that it's sincere, but I think you would probably you know, you'd probably need to have some pretty compelling proof to make, to make people buy that argument. Yeah. There's, there's some questions. (laughs) 
So before we move on to Emily, do you have anything else on the on this actually? No, I mean this is all again interesting world that I know little about and learning more and more horrifying things here. Yeah, just you know the the kind of capper I would just put on on this part of our discussion is that I can easily understand someone listening to this and saying like, you know, this is all really interesting. And I hope, you know, if these crimes were committed that, you know, people go to jail and that, you know, the, the survivors and the victims get justice. Um, But like, why do I really care about this? So first off, I think that, you know, this is a big company and we should always care about this kind of wrongdoing, but it also ramifies out past the world of wrestling. So the McMahon and Trump families are really closely tied together. Um, Vince McMahon's wife, Linda, is a former cabinet official in the Trump administration. She currently heads a, a super PAC that is Trump aligned um, and you know may have some role in a future Trump administration. The ties between Trump and the McMahons go way past that. He was a promoter of WWE events at his casinos in the eighties. He was a performer at WrestleMania. He, he and McMahon each managed a wrestler in a hair match at a WrestleMania where the, the big draw was that um, either Vince McMahon or Donald Trump would get their head shaved and McMahon ended up getting his head shaved. So there is that there's a, there's a very powerful family in Connecticut with political ties to the Trump administration. And also at a period when even if the most horrifying details about all this weren't known, but it was known that there were allegations of sexual coercion, that there were, you know, about $20 million worth of NDA payouts and all this stuff. Um, Ari Emanuel put together a deal to merge WWE with Netflix. It was reported as a $21.6 billion deal. And that raises some questions about what exactly he knew about all this. And then you know, WWE has been negotiating its rights deals over the last year or so. A couple of days before this lawsuit we've been talking about was filed, they closed a deal with Netflix worth billions of dollars, and it can last up to 20 years to broadcast WWE Raw and other programming all around the world. So this is a company that's in partnership with Netflix, with um, the CW currently with Fox, with Peacock. Um, They're connected to a lot of really influential and powerful players in business and tech and media. And the current stance of TKO and WWE is basically that, you know, all these allegations regard things that Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis did. They're no longer with the company and the company is under new management. I think as a matter, you know, obviously there's something we're continuing to report on that other outlets are continuing to report on and, you know, that uh, grants lawyers are looking into and probably other lawyers are looking into, you know, whether that's true. But it's pretty hard to believe that you could have a system with alleged sex trafficking going on, uh, a casting couch, the owner allegedly preying sexually on the on-air performers and all the rest of it without, you know, the knowledge and perhaps the complicity of people who are still there. So the whole knot reveals something that is, you know, without wanting to be too sensationalistic or lurid about it, 
it, you know, it, it reads like one of the um, sex abuse rings that people have very fervent fantasies about when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein, you know, and I don't want to, by saying that, I don't, you know, in any way mean to diminish the reality of, of what we know Epstein did, but there's in the American consciousness, this kind of idea of, you know, cabals secretly abusing women, secretly abusing children, trafficking people and everything. And here you have a company where behavior very much like that is very seriously, incredibly alleged to have occurred. And it has ties to all these power players. That is something that really bears examination to me, not in the sense of, you know, did, did Ari Emanuel or Netflix do this? Like they didn't, they're not responsible for Vince McMahon's conduct, but you know, they decided to go into business with this guy, even after the journal had reported all about this coercive conduct and all these NDAs. And, you know, I think there are real concerns there about what really powerful figures are willing to tolerate in their business partners. And that's just something to consider when we think about how we're treating these issues as a society. You know, it's definitely something that, you know, you hear and see a lot of people writing think pieces about like, has me too gone too far? I, I don't know. You tell me. I know that this guy was was known to have paid out tens of millions of dollars in in hush money. And, you know, it didn't prevent him from taking control of this company uh, back over. It didn't prevent him from doing business with all these big fancy people. And it didn't prevent all these big fancy companies from going into business with this company. So perhaps that's an answer as to as to whether... We have, uh, you know, indeed entered into a, a state of affairs where people take allegations of sexual misconduct too seriously. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. So I had a transition, but I don't know if it works anymore. Uh... It was speaking of kayfabe. Uh, <laughs> we should leave this in. Speaking of kayfabe, speaking let's of talk kayfabe. about let's talk about military space assets. Let's talk about nukes in space. <laughs> let's talk about nukes in space. What's the news here? Why don't you tell me? What's the news here? Uh, yeah, I mean the, the sad thing is that um, I have a lot of friends that are reaching out asking me what the news is, and my answer is always the same. Is Honestly, not a lot. But uh, what happened was yesterday, a shit. I don't have it in front of me. It was the Republican from Ohio, basically put out a statement that was like, "There's a pressing threat to America, to national security. Uh, that is a pressing national security threat, 
that Joe Biden needs to acknowledge. Um, I know about it because I've seen it in intelligence reports. And we need to have a discussion about this. The American people need to be briefed. Uh, and it is messed up. That this is not, and I'm paraphrasing, by the way, these are not direct quotes. Um, so then there was the scramble for the next several hours as people were trying to figure out what this, what he was talking about. Aliens. I figured it was aliens. Right. I feel like we always think it's aliens. And when it's not aliens, it's like the worst day ever. It's such it's a like, It could have fucking been aliens. It's never aliens. <laughs> Slowly, the information starts to come out that the Pentagon is concerned about Russia fielding nuclear weapons in space for the purposes of knocking satellites out of the air. This is a real, like, I hesitate to say that this is a real concern, but this is, to me, this is not news. So here's here's my analysis as somebody who pays some attention to this stuff, but is, but is by no means an expert. So there is a treaty banning the deployment of nuclear weapons in space, which everyone agrees is a good idea, especially anyone who's seen for all mankind where um, Joel, what's his face? Joel I, Kinnaman. I just started asked, watching it literally yesterday. So don't. Oh, okay. So I, don't won't, tell me. Wow. I won't give you any spoilers, but I will say that <laughs> nuclear, nuclear power being used on the moon eventually presents as something that may be slightly problematic. There's a, there's a treaty banning, nuclear warfare in space, putting nukes in space, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, the technology used to deliver nuclear weapons from one continent to another, the intercontinental ballistic missile, is basically the same technology we use to launch rockets into space. So anyone like Russia who has an ICBM and has nukes inherently has the capability of launching nuclear weapons into space and blowing up satellites. On top yes. of that, most nuclear weapons that you would launch into space to destroy satellites or station there would put out uh, an electromagnetic pulse that would fry the circuitry of everything in a certain radius, presumably including strong Russian satellites as well as uh, you know weak Western ones. So that the only thing that could be new and alarming that isn't already inherently present in the capabilities of Russia or any other nuclear state would be if they had come up with an exotic technology that was literally able to fry enemy circuits while leaving its own circuits alone. Do I have this basically right? Yes. Yes. To my mind. Yes. I would, I would add ca ca caveats. Like it's an old treaty. It's 1967. And Russia has shown that it is willing and able to flout or withdraw itself from treaties, especially regarding nuclear weapons. Not that that super matters. There are better ways to knock out a satellite. Yeah, I was going to ask that it seems kind of silly to waste a nuke, so to speak, on just knocking a satellite out of orbit. Yeah, I mean, they're depending on the satellite, they're not that hard to, to mess up. <laughs> yeah, you can point like a laser pointer at it or throw a rock at it, right, and get the same basic effects, right? Yes. So, I mean, it would be it would be maybe a better idea idea to like go up there and grab a Starlink satellite and hurl it at the GPS satellite <laughs> that you want to destroy, right. right? There's a lot of things up there you can throw. So, so if as as people who pay attention to this stuff, we're kind of like, eh, you know, it's not like not news, but you know. Russia has been able to do this since the fifties. Like there's, 
there's there's not anything super new sounding there. How much of this do you think comes down to people? And I don't even mean this critically. I just mean it, you know, as a statement of fact, like people not really knowing about the, the whole nuclear complex. And so if you tell them something that's been a known public capability of nuclear states for like 70 years, they say, oh, my God, really? Yeah, I mean, I think people really turn their brains off uh, when nuclear weapons come up. Certainly, that's kind of been the way my whole life. It has changed recently as people have become more afraid, in some ways positive, in some ways not. But the story that always gets me, that made me start paying attention when I learned it years ago, is that we've we've got this system now where uh, there are several armed countries that can annihilate the entire planet many, many ways over. It used to be just America had this capability. And the way they maintained this capability uh, throughout the 60s was fighter pilots on speed in the in the air, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, over the entire planet, essentially, except uh, Russia, right outside of it, right outside of the Soviet Union. Uh, so they could, they could get to Moscow if they needed to, but... But this was – they were, it was all bombs. This was pre-ICBMs. And this was the way that America maintained its nuclear forces for a long time. There were a lot of accidents and a lot of bad things happened. We've had the sort of Damocles over us in, in far more terrifying ways than we do now. Uh, but all of that's memory hold. Like nobody really understands that or knows it or realizes that we like poisoned huge parts of uh, a Denmark or Greenland rather by dropping a nuke there. Oh yeah, yeah, Emily, you're giving me the eyes. Yeah, wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Are, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll send you some stuff after. This like super side note. I've been watching these like you know YouTube documentaries about life in Greenland to help me fall asleep, and I have not gotten to this chapter clearly. It's, it was a part of their. Uh, it's like a very icy part. It was, it's, it was bad, but it wasn't like yeah. it wasn't a civilian area. However, we did uh, also lose one over Spain, which, which. Uh, broke open and there was radiation poisoning and it was really terrible. Um, and that is part of why they stopped doing it. It's because there had been so many accidents and we poisoned like a, uh, uh, an ally and they were like, all right, well no more Americans in our airspace because we can't have nukes falling out of the sky. Um, and like, just, we don't remember this. We don't, we don't, we don't realize that we just live with this all the time. And so yeah, like I'm not worried. And, and again, like even, this more direct threat, like the military, the Pentagon has been talking about this for like five years. They've mentioned this before, this specific thing of like Russia designing something to put up in the sky and nuke satellites. Like they, they have warned of this. And so what, what it appears to me has happened is that um, somebody read an intelligence briefing and there's a political game going on of some kind that we're only privy to parts of. And they're using, like, I can't stress enough that having read intelligence reports, uh, I think people are imagining that this is, thing is going to be a book and the Pentagon knows all this very interesting stuff and they've given it over to the, the Senate, like these intelligence committees, right? In reality, it's often like three or four sentences. One thing that would be great for many here, I'll give two reading recommendations for, for our listeners today. One is on these nuclear issues, if, um, you know, anything anyone is saying here is just kind of piquing your interest and you're like, I want to learn more about this. There's a really good book called Command and Control 
Um, I'm blanking on the author's name. Eric Schlosser. Eric Schlosser. He also wrote uh, Fast Food Nation, which is another excellent book. And he got like 25,000 pages of unclassified documents through FOIA. And he basically charted out this, you know, a lot of this stuff is still secret. But he was able to establish all kinds of crazy stuff about the secret American military empire and all these accidents. And there was also a very good documentary based on the book that really focused on when a nuke exploded in a silo. And I think it was Nebraska. Just the guy that dropped the wrench. Yeah. A guy dropped the wrench and basically the bombs that set off the nuke went off and like ejected the nuke out of the silo. And it was a, it was a fluke that the actual nuke didn't go off. Like it, it very well could have. And so if you want something to terrify you or just inform you about all that stuff, that's a really good, that's a really good book and a really good place to start. And my other reading assignment would just be like any kind of declassified intelligence briefings or intelligence materials. They're all over the place on the internet, whether it's the fifties or whether it's relatively more recent, you know, for a long time I had in mind that like the CIA was super competent and they knew everything. And like the NSA had its ears everywhere. And when you actually read this stuff, it's like well below the standards of tabloid journalism. And so much of it accounts to, you know, amounts to, some drunk guy we're paying money to knows a guy who heard a guy who read in a newspaper in Hungary that some columnist thinks this thing is going to happen. And by the time it goes through the whole bureaucracy, it becomes like a top secret, ultra classified reports about possible troop movements or whatever. And you realize like so much of this stuff is really is really just gossip and not actually held to the standards that you expect of like any even vaguely reputable website as far as like a two source rule or anything like that. It really does just amount to like some guy heard some guy talking about how he thinks this thing is going to happen. And this is all happening in many cases, uh, like severe language barriers. Like it's just, things sound so much more ominous if you call them an intelligence product, as opposed to like a bureaucratic briefing about what some dude thinks. I think a really good recent example of this are the Jack Teixeira Discord leaks. Mm-hmm. That stuff went around. It's available in the press. You can read a lot of it. You can see the screenshots of it to kind of see what what people on the intelligence committee are actually seeing. And literally, there was one in there, Tim, that was um, they were listening to somebody's phone call and they said, like, you know, Putin's got Putin's got cancer, and that turned into like a. Th- five sentence intelligence report. And that was the source. It's just something they overheard on a phone call and then forwarded on. Yeah. And that's not even to uh, diminish or denigrate our, our intelligence professionals. Like their job is to put together all this fragmentary information from like biased sources or incomplete, you know, bits of information and try to figure out like, you know, what seems real, what doesn't, what do we know? What we did. It's a lot like, it's a lot like journalism and I've talked to people in intelligence who draw that connection. It's like, you don't really know you're trying to establish like, what do we know? What don't we know? What can we say is, you know, what can we say is realistic? What, what do we dismiss as fantasy? But it's, you know, it's an, it's an art, not a science. And then if you have some random Congressman who doesn't even like, <laughs> doesn't even really think about all this stuff at all. You just read something in a briefing book and he's like, oh my God, the Russians and the aliens are coming to get us. Yeah, what do we even make of that at this point? Now that we kind of have a sense of what's actually going on behind the, you know, 
fairly transparent curtain. I really think, and again, this is this is gut, this is speculation. Uh, I think the House GOP had lost a lost a seat the night before. Um, I think there's all kinds of legislative battles that are around um, uh, aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, uh, border stuff. And Tim, what's the other one? There's like, um, oh God, there's a there's a surveillance <laughs> thing up as well. Seven oh two. Seven oh two. Yeah. Um, and that this 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 is part of some game that we only see bits of. That's what this is, in my in, in my opinion. Uh, I can't put all of the pieces together, but that's what the shape of this thing feels like to me. Yeah, it's like I was I was talking to you two and Slack about this yesterday, but it's like if if I had to guess, I would guess that this is this is secret less because of Russia has capabilities that if, as we were just discussing, it inherently has that like anybody would know they have than how, uh, how we know that that's called sources and methods in the intelligence community. You know, if the intelligence is that people in England drink tea, that might not be secret, but that if the, if the source of the intelligence was a secret U S spy camera that observes what, uh, you know, the British are up to, it might be secret because we don't want to acknowledge we have that capability, right? So it's entirely possible that the secret here isn't some exotic space technology, but that you know some some high up in the Russian equivalent of NASA was telling someone in the CIA about it, right? And you've seen this in the past where con- members of Congress and Democrats have done this as well as Republicans. It's like a pretty it's a pretty good political trick. You can say. Hey, there's something I can't talk about, but if you knew about it, you would know that the administration is compromising our national security. And it's kind of an awesome political trick because definitionally the president, if you have this this stuff that's secret and is like classified for some legitimate reason, even if it's just to keep secret that we have cameras on every corner in London, they can't talk about it. So the congressman is being all ominous and spooky and saying, use your imagination. It's horrible. It could kill us all. If the president really cared. You know, they would declassify this and be straight with the American people. And, you know, the administration might very well be sitting there saying, well, we just can't do that. And they have no way to defend themselves. So they they made it available to it was just a House and Senate Intelligence Committee report. And they have since made it available to all members of Congress. Yeah. And they've also made it available to readers of the newspaper. Like (laughs) within a couple of hours of all this. I was reading a story in the New York Times about what exactly the super secret uh, secret was. So apparently it wasn't that secret. But, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, if I was a congressman, I'd be doing that all the time. I'd be like, I can't tell you what I know about aliens, but I can tell you that guy doesn't want you to know. And he's keeping it from you. And so you should vote for me and my friends. Yeah, exactly. It's It's something like that, I think. It's, I'm not... I'm not more worried about nukes in space than I am about nukes in general. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think space or on the ground, it's all it's all the same. It's all yeah, I don't want to diminish the harm that could come from like random satellites being nuked that would do bad things for babies and incubators and my ability to text my mom and all sorts of other things. But if anyone's going to be exploding them, I would prefer they explode them up there. That we can deal with. Tim, I think that's a lovely place to end unless somebody has something else. No. I think that's a great place to leave it, and I hope everybody goes and reads some intelligence reports and command control, which is a really scary book. 
Yes. It's uh, very, very long, very daunting, and very horrifying, but everyone should read it. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.